All right, soccer freaks. This is ATL on Fire, the podcast where we're going to be talking all things Atlanta United Football Club. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy. because we have no choice in the, the new normal. Um, and, you know, I did a, a podcast last week via audio as just a rant after our MLS back tragedies and our loss to the Columbus crew uh, where we went, uh, yeah, back to back to back losses with uh, Cincinnati in the mix there. And um, today we're zooming back in. Uh, we've, we're recording uh, with some video uh, to enhance our podcast, maybe on YouTube. We'll see if that happens or not. But more importantly, I've got my co-host Dave back who adds uh, some adult behavior to this podcast and some insights <laughs> that I can't bring and levity as well. So Dave, how, how you been? It's been a strange four months. I've been good, although, you know, I have to say you running solo is uh, very impressive. I try to do what I can do, you know, but uh, yeah, I was uh, I was a little unsure about doing that, but I felt like a little maybe some 15 minute rants might not be a bad way to keep the frequency up of uh, the ATL on fire podcast. But um, yeah, what else is new in your world? Um, same as everybody trying to stay inside and, uh, avoid getting COVID. Um, so fortunately, uh, you know, as much as our MLS, uh, is back disaster was a disaster. Um, at least COVID didn't run through the team and kill everybody. Yeah. That's a, that's a plus plus. Yeah. Um, optimist. <laughs> so we've got a, a man with a mustache that is, uh, joining us, uh, Alan Kohlhepp. Uh, a great friend and a uh, long t- time uh, soccer player teammate uh, of both of ours, Dave. Um, Alan is out in California joining us a little early on the clock on a Friday night. So really appreciate it. Um, Alan, um, if, if you don't mind, I usually ask our guests as, as we get into this, you know, a little bit about your soccer background um your jersey probably is giving away some hints about your your childhood and your roots um but now me- mikey dobbs are you gonna skip the intro and the wine i mean oh, have I'm- we just gone rogue <laughs> that's what we do on the on the fire so alan hold up hold up uh <laughs> dave what are you what are you drinking over there you you have any wine yeah, I'm drinking a um, a Cabernet from uh, Chile. It's a Santa Carolina. It's very nice um, from the Colchuga Valley, um, nice. which makes terrific wines in Chile. Yeah, one of these days we're going to get uh, you know a Chilean player, and then I'll be able to say, look. I'm drinking. I'm drinking our house wine, which is like a McManus, you know, ten dollar, which is I love it, but. Uh, Good drinking wine. So you got to run, you know, in different directions when I'm not around. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Alan, back to you. Um, yeah, I'm drinking a Weller bourbon. That's very uh, Cincinnati, Kentucky of you. So, so yeah, let's jump into that. You know, what, uh, what's your background with soccer and, and, you know, uh, we know you, you probably have a, a, a spot in your heart for Atlanta United, but obviously Cincinnati with uh, your, your background. Yeah. Um, I'll go all the way back. Um, my, uh, my mom signed me up for soccer at age four. My dad said, uh, I think that's a girl's sport. And my mom said, well, uh, we've already paid for it. So he's, he's playing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I, yeah, I kept playing uh, until now, um, although it's slowing down very fast. Um, the girls' game is growing, so you know, yeah, I mean, absolutely, just a little prescient. I and take then... it as a compliment. Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, yeah, I uh, grew up playing in Kentucky. Um, went to uh, Center College, played there for four years. Played against Dave at one point uh, when he was at Wash U, and. Um, I can't remember the outcome of that match, but that's fine. <laughs> I can. Uh, <laughs> I'll say, I feel like I know how that one went then. I can also remember a brilliant goal in the last 10 minutes or so, but uh, we won't go there. Hmm. I, I can't remember it. <laughs> um, play, yeah, played at center. Uh, let's see, went out to uh, Monterey, California uh, for graduate school and uh, played for a pub team there then uh, played uh, for my graduate school a little bit, went up to Seattle, played for a team called the Seattle Wolves, uh, which sort of grew into a semi-pro uh, Seattle Wolves team. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure what their status is these days. Um, and then moved to Atlanta uh, in 2004, where I joined up with uh, Sting SC and you guys. Um, we formed the Action Jacksons to be the midweek uh, uh, reprieve from work we're hanging on by a thread man telling you what ah uh, but, we but those moving, were we those were some of the up. best yeah. those were some of the best uh soccer days for sure the seven on seven league at silverbacks yeah. park playing against makumba kanji and like a year or two later seeing him assist the winning goal in the mls cup MLS was like final pretty, yes yeah pretty amazing um does anybody know what happened to him so you know he moved um after playing for two mls teams he moved over to Europe and he was playing for an Icelandic club and he actually appeared in the champions league, um, in the, in wow. the qualifying rounds. But I seem to recall he was with FC Helsinki for a little bit, uh, oh, okay. as well, but I don't know what he's doing now. He must be, um, in his forties at this point. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's probably <laughs> yeah, still probably quite right. like young. Um, yeah, he's probably 12. Yeah. After, and then in 2010, I, uh, moved, to California, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. I've been playing in a, a league in Marin County for a team called uh, West Tam United. Um, we've got, it's cute. yeah, it is cute. Um, we've got a full club now. We've grown into three teams, uh, oh. Tam United for short. And uh, we have got North Tam, which are the over 40s. I played for them, uh, play for West Tam still in the open league. And then we have a kind of a brother team, um, East Ham United. So we've got three, three teams in our club and it's a good time. So, um, have you, you've been to a couple games at the Mercedes Benz, right? Um, I've been to one. You've been to one. Yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, as I've said on this show, you know, MLS is a league that, you know, I, I'm a big fan of because, uh, you know, 
having a league in the U.S. is is awesome. But I'm obviously a bandwagon of the league since it's been around for, since '96, and I could care less to Atlanta United. But it's it's pretty cool to have a team that's in your hometown, and you know you have some roots here in Atlanta. But Cincinnati, can you you tell me um, about you know what the people in Cincinnati think about having an expansion team that just came oh. into the league last year? So Alan Alan actually missed the start of Atlanta United, you had just left before it started. Right. So um, you didn't get to partake in the glory of Atlanta United, but now Cincinnati, tell us. Yeah. uh, I mean, it sort of means everything to that city. Cincinnati is not a big town. Um, You can kind of get anywhere in 15 minutes, which (laughs) living in Atlanta, you can kind of get anywhere in an hour or something. Um, (laughs) So it's a small town and, um, you know, it's a, an old sports town, Cincinnati Reds being the oldest baseball team. Uh, the Bengals have been around for a while, but suffering uh, for a long time. Um, I think that soccer has always been huge in Cincinnati from a youth participation level. And there's been some really great players that have come out of Cincinnati. Uh, most recently, Rose Lavelle uh, is, is uh, like Lavelle, the yeah. hero right now. Um, but she so plays when, in DC. Yeah, no, she doesn't play for Cincinnati, but she grew up there. Um, But, uh, yeah, it just means everything to that town. Um, And the the stadium's full, and it's singing in full voice. And the march from, uh, you know, one part of town to the stadium uh, by all the fans is – it's fantastic. It's it's really, really cool. It's a really – and there's this po- positive scene. There's also plans, right, um, for a construction of a new stadium on kind of a different side of town. I know there's been a little controversy on that, as there was is in every city that's expanding, that's sure. trying to figure out where they're going to put their stadium. Um, but what what is that part of town like? Do you know anything about where they're putting the new stadium and what the plans are? Yeah, so currently they play at Nippert, which is uh, University of Cincinnati's stadium. It's like a horseshoe. It's a giant giant, giant stadium, uh, which is, has been a, a great thing for, you know, an interim yeah. situation. But they're building uh, the new stadium. It's actually like half complete. I just saw it. Uh, it's in the West End uh, part of Cincinnati, which is just off of downtown. It's like about, I, w- I guess you could say it's like a little bit northwest of the center of downtown. It's uh, right in the middle of uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, restaurants and bars and parks and uh, it's going to be a, a really cool thing to but can you take see us a game back, right in the middle of the stadium. Can you take us back slightly, you know, so Cincinnati, one of the reasons why uh, there was a push to put Cincinnati into the MLS was due to the success of their A-League team, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, FC Cincinnati is not a super old club. I mean, it's I think it's like five or six years total in tenure, but in their USL days, they were selling out uh, the Nippert stadium. They were getting 25 to 30,000 fans uh, for just average USL games, which was blowing MLS, some MLS attendance uh, out of the water. So really it was such a good question, Dave, because um, it sort of shows the commitment of the Cincinnati fans uh, supporting the club from day one. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things is, like, once teams start winning, it's a hell of a lot easier to get on that bandwagon. So it'll be interesting. Like, I mean, as 
is, is there's hopefully parity in, in the MLS, which there actually has been, if you look at the winners, um, yeah. There's, there's been a lot of different teams that have won the MLS Cup and had, had different types of successes. Um, and, and we certainly got to experience that here in Atlanta in 2018. The energy of, you know, of soccer being shared in, in these cities, I think to me it's kind of just a fascinating thing. As I was saying, like I'm a fan of the MLS, not because it's the best league in the world. It's probably number 15 or 20 in, or further if – you know, oh. people want to argue i don't know um <laughs> but it's 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 not but it's not the best but it's it's our league and uh and the thing is is it could rapidly move up that ladder wherever you rank it pretty quickly because you know follow the money and if there is um coaches that are coming here that are like um you know well-known names that you know and you got david beckham in miami it's a pretty interesting kind of I think part of the hockey stick that's happening and you know Atlanta United obviously is a part of that but I just I I just to me it's fascinating because soccer really does feel like it's exploding in the U.S. and and the MLS finally has found its its roots unfortunately COVID hasn't helped uh 2020 in in kind of the path that they're they're on but one of the things that we were gonna we're not gonna touch upon here of course Um, is sort of promotion and relegation. And one of the arguments for that has always been teams like like Cincinnati. And you say, all right, well, they have the attendance so they can actually afford to buy a few players and they can win the lower league. And, you know, they deserve a chance to play in MLS because of that. Yeah, I I was going to uh, add on to what you were saying, Mike, about big names coming over, uh, you know, as we know, FC Cincinnati has just hired Yap Stam, who Dave might be a little jealous that we've got that guy. Um, yeah, he got ran Manchester out of Man United. United. Yeah, yeah, he got ran out of Man United by Alex Ferguson. Although I will say that, you know, good old FC Cincinnati, um, I noticed that, or I, I read that um, in the original press release, they had a picture of Yap Stam and it was actually a picture of somebody else. Yes. Oops. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it's that Jean-Luc Picard look. A lot yeah. of people have it. Uh, the other guy it, apparently it did look a lot like Gapstam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Stomp said he had, that had happened to him several times, probably not in a press release for his hiring, but uh, he had been mistaken for that particular, it was another coach actually. Well, yeah. let's just hope that Dutchman's better than the Dutchman that we've had at the helm here oh, oh. the last year and a <laughs> half. Um, because it hasn't been pretty. I mean, Atlanta United's performance in the MLS back thing was just um, clear that, you know, you know, when you have your best game against New York Red Bulls and then that's your best game and then you play even worse against uh, Cincinnati, we had two red cards, I think, in that game. And then somehow the Columbus game was even worse. Uh, it was really just – it was amazing to watch given the fact that we do have talent, just how Atlanta, you know, it was clear that there was no, no rudder. Um, there was no leadership on the field, which is a proxy of there's no coaching leadership. And so the decision of them getting rid of Frank DeBoer was not a surprise to me at all. I mean, I want to talk about that first game. I mean, you know, we can talk about second and third game if they're the same. But, second, um, second, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let, let's skip that one. Um, 
So, but you know, I think there's there was a moment that epitomizes the De Boer era, which is the goal that we conceded, you know, in the one nothing game, right? So we have the ball. Escobar wins the ball. He's bringing the ball out of the back, and you know, in a very aggressive way, right? And um, we had um, so both Be- Bello out- and Lennon were gunning up both right? outside backs, Lennon and Bello take off up the field. Okay, so two things happen, right? So Lennon basically runs his defender almost right into Escobar. Okay. And Bello, who's on the far side of the field, on the left side of the field, because Escobar was coming up sort of the right side of the field, right, was running up the field and had not a chance in in a million of getting the ball, right? So when Escobar lost the ball, unfortunately, right, we were left with only the two center backs. And what had happened was um, – one of the center backs had come over. Um, um, oh my goodness! Um, but uh, one of the center Meza backs had come over. Miles, I don't know which. Miles, Miles came over to cover for Lennon, who had gone up the field, right? And then they left Meza all alone, and he was there with basically two players, and it was a midfielder who ran out of the, out of the middle for an easy through ball, right? But my point in that play is, okay. You've already got a back Escobar running with the ball up the field, right? Which is nice. He's taking the space. He's going to start a counter or whatever. Why in the world do you need the two outside backs going forward just mindlessly, right? I mean, it's one thing to have one of the backs go forward, you know, and make a run with the ball or without the ball, right? But Lennon wasn't helping. He just crowding the space. And Bello you know, all he was going to do up there was just stand and wait, right? So if Lennon were to have a little bit of patience and could see, well, maybe if if Escobar gets in trouble, he makes an overlap run and helps him. And Bello should have been staying in the back, right, and have no business running up the field. And even if we move the ball into the middle and we need Bello to run forward, he has all that room to run into instead of being there already standing by himself and having no momentum, right? So my point about that is, okay, you know, DeBoer sort of claims that he was committed to offense. And he says, look, you know, my outside backs were going forward or whatever. But when your outside backs are going forward so mindlessly and it doesn't help the offense at all, you only want people sacrificing defenders going forward if it's going to lead to goals. If it just leads to you being vulnerable in the back, it's useless. Right. And for all of the times when they just been flying up the field on the outside, we scored zero goals. They didn't create any chances. Right. So that to me is the epitome of it. It's it's players going forward without any purpose. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the formula is clearly not working. Um, I, I don't want to get in too much into the Frank DeBoer. I want to, jump into that and do a little, little bit of a later segment. I want to make sure we give the audience some more shenanigans and get into our trivia segment um, right out of the gates. Alan, what do, what do you got? 
I do want to ask or, or maybe ask a question. Does that scenario that Dave has just uh, kind of ranted against remind you of anyone from Sting SC? It reminds me of one particular outside back uh, yeah. running off, going off the reservation a little bit. Uh, yeah. Is that me or? No, no. God love him. Uh, Osei. Uh, Osei Ose, used to uh, go up really far forward and get yeah. really caught out <laughs> position sometimes. Well, he played but behind he played behind me quite often and I was always, I always liked uh, having him behind me to, to make up for my mistake. So, uh, you know, I, I can't really complain, but yeah, I kind of liked it when he went off into, uh, into, you know, I was, I was willing to cover, you know, he did score a couple of times yeah. uh, from that. Anyway, just I have no me. problem with backs going off the reservation and going forward. Right. But sort of, if they're going to go up forward, then you have to have the other players covering for the space. Yeah. And if they're going forward like that and running all the way forward, then it should create an advantage. It should create an open player somewhere. And if you just have guys running up just to stand there with no momentum or anything, it does nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So this is already too serious, this, this uh, ATL <laughs> fire show. So we're going to jump into trivia to lighten some shit up. And, um, and I've used some profanity there to, to, to get us going here. Oh, I'm really trivia, jazzed now. Hey, yeah, there's, there's <laughs> 10 questions in ATL on Fire Trivia. And I don't know, the best anybody's done is maybe six, Alan, in terms of yeah. uh, the, the correct answers. I think six, Anna and Simon got six. They got six or seven. Mm. I don't know. Mm. Like, it was a controversy on that one with your kids. They did very well. <laughs> but I, I believe they are the – There uh, was two of them, so. Yeah. And they are, right. they're, they're smarter than any of us combined. So um, what year were yellow and red cards introduced to soccer? Wow. <laughs> if you that... need a lifeline, I'll give you a hint, okay? Yes. You want a lifeline? <laughs> it, yeah. it happened during a World Cup. Oh, okay. Well, that, so that at least kind of that narrows you... it. That narrows it by like. Yeah, you got groups of four right of years yes that's right that's right i can uh, take a guess about the impetus for it wait alan let me tell you this right i'll give you some I history on the that. imp the impetus i could be wrong um it could be totally talking um out my whatever but um i think the impetus there were a couple of uruguayan teams that were very very physical and they just started basically to use the foul basically to you know nullify any kind of you know advantages and hmm. i wouldn't be surprised if it came about to that's, try and that's stop. part of the story i'm gonna get once you answer i'm gonna give you did, the background on it because i've i'm supposed yeah, to have did, knowledge but i've researched this did that uruguayan is this the uh it's like the grandfather of suarez that they, was he biting that's people right, yeah. Um, so yeah i don't know uh hmm it would have been early part of the 1900s. Uh, I don't know the years of the World Cup going back that oh, far. Keep I'd... in mind, the, the World Cup is it's pretty modern, a relatively modern thing. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't go back that far. Right. Doesn't it go back to maybe the 30s? Something like that. Uh, I'll say 1950. Not, not too far. If that's 20 years off, it was uh, in 1970, the FIFA World Cup in Mexico. In Mexico uh, City? The yeah the the yellow and the reds were introduced. the The concept was actually from a guy named Ken Aston, who is an Englishman uh, who passed away in two thousand one. Um, 
but he, his his roots in in I guess refereeing are pretty long. He he refed a lot of games that included like Argentina England back in the day, and a lot of these games were really heated. And it, you know some of the things just politically, whether it was Chile versus Italy at the time, um, were creating a lot of you know angst before these games started. You kind of knew it was going to get chippy and. Um, I believe during the, the FA Cup in like 1966 or something like that, um, he, was, he was a ref. And one of the things, one of the controversies about it was is they would write people's name down when they booked it, but it wasn't like a public demonstration that they had been cautioned. The ref was like writing it down in his book. And I believe it was uh, both of the, uh, uh, the Charlton brothers, Jack and, and who's the other one? Bobby. Bobby got booked, but it wasn't d- disclosed until the game was over that they had actually been written up in the book, right? And huh. so there was a there was some uh, you know kerfuffle about that. And so as as Ken Aston was thinking about this problem, he was like driving through the streets of England and was at a stoplight and it turned yellow and red. And he kind of had the vision <laughs> of like you know yellow is like hey slow down and red you're out of here. Um, and that supposedly is the story that I read online. Take that huh. with some truthiness, but that's huh. that's how um, the concept came to be. Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. We, uh, at uh, here on the ATL on Fire podcast, um, we only know a little bit about MLS, but we know a lot about the history of cards. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a teammate out here who uh, received two yellows in the same match. And the referee forgot that he was uh, uh, carded already. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. So in U.S. soccer refereeing, going into 2020, how many grade levels are available for refs? How many different distinctions of refereeing are there in terms of licenses or groups of where you're – I'm going to go with who cares? Well, that's a good answer. (laughs) I think Matt Noop would know that answer. Uh, I figured. True. I figured Dave would actually know this. Phone a friend. <laughs> just shoot. Uh, just shoot. I'm you... gonna go with uh, five. That's spot on. That's correct. That's what I was gonna guess too. Wow. It was previously. I had no idea. Yeah, it was previously nine grades, and now they've grouped those into five to make yeah. it easier. Where I remember when they changed that. Yeah, grassroots <laughs> is like nine to seven have moved into that regional six to five have moved into oh. regional national three to four. And then I guess pro and FIFA are both one and twos, which is like the highest, highest level. All right. Alan proving that the FC Cincinnati fans are not shite. So moving from <laughs> refereeing to coaching U S soccer coaching licenses include designations of grassroots D C B youth Youth A and pro, is that true or false? Uh, 50-50. I'm going to go with false. It's actually true, hmm. um, which I didn't know that either. Um, so, I don't know, Dave, you know anything about coaching licenses? Because I was kind of curious about this as the positions open mm-hmm. in Atlanta United. I was going to kind of flex. It sounded, it sounded right, but I was like, there has to be a trick there. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> But yeah. more importantly, uh, the next question is, is how much does a pro license cost? So if you want to go through all the programs and become mm-hmm. a pro, which I guess would be like division, you know, grade one or two in the traditional sense, 
What do you got to pony up in terms of cash? Is it more or less than $6,000? Uh, for This is for the, uh, for the pro, coaching license? For a pro, yeah. for if you are able oh. to go through all the classes and you want to be a pro and you've got done all your homework, you still got to pay. $6,000 $6, is a very arbitrary uh, number to pick. That's what we do here on Trivia. It almost feels like that's the number you have to spend. Um, but, but is I'm it more say, or less? I'm going to say more. It is more. It's $10,000 yeah. for a pro license. How weird. Yeah. It's very extensive. When you get up to the higher licenses, you actually not only have to, you know, you know show proficiency in certain coaching things and drills and stuff, but you actually have to perform them. You have to be able yeah. to demonstrate certain skills to show that you can, dem you know, you're able to demonstrate those in coaching capacity. Yeah, this in, my, is in my research, I was, it was interesting. I'm, and it seems like the coaches have to have some level of knowledge and licensing from the refereeing standpoint as well, whether that's like learned in like they're, it's wavered in some capacity, but they have to prove that their understanding of how the game is officiated is proficient, proficient. This all of this talk about coaching licenses is exactly why I'm starting the Alan Kolhep School of Soccer Mediocrity, uh, which basically doesn't require any investment in, in coaching. You basically just get a bunch of kids and like let them run around and let them have fun. That's that's my style of coaching. That's excellent. That's actually how the game was intended. Yes. <laughs> um, None of this. I mean, it's not, you know, going back to youth soccer, you watch these fathers and mothers and whatever coaching and they've got all these lines and the 24 you know cones in different formations and whatever and you know sometimes as a coach myself some parents will reach out to me and they're like well what do you think I should do I said put a goal at either side get two or three players on the field and tell them to have fun yeah yeah make sure they touch, touch the ball a lot yeah question number five Alan who is the coach of the Montreal Impact Mm. Oh, wow. that's an easy uh, one. I know that one. Softball. Yeah. The coach came to the club this last year and said he wanted to coach. They didn't even go out and try to acquire him. Is that Thierry Henry? Yes. You got one it. One nil yeah. to the Arsenal. One nil to the Arsenal. Well done. The penalty kick, or PK as we call it, was introduced before or after 1900. <laughs> the penalty kick. Mikey Dobbs reached the I'm end say of the I, internet. Wait, wait, wait. Mikey I, Dobbs. I keep the struggling to find 10 trivia <laughs> questions, but this is a good He's one. Clearly gone. Now, Mikey Dobbs, what did you discover there at the end of the soccer internet? Are there little rainbow people? There's unbelievable stuff researching <laughs> the that's why I love doing this, because it's fascinating. Okay. Uh I would say that uh, given the the, uh, the slow pace with which the red and the yellow card were developed, uh, that there were probably also a slow pace to or slower pace than we would have imagined to the uh, sort of the lines on the field and the penalty area. Probably like goalkeepers didn't have a, an area or something like that. Uh, whatever <laughs> Sylvester Stallone was doing in the goal back then, <laughs> there wasn't. Uh, Walk about. I'm going to say after, after. You're wrong. It was in 1890 or 1891, I believe, that oh, it was introduced. Yeah, and it was actually uh, invented by a goalkeeper, I guess a business named William 
McCrum. What kind of goalkeeper invents a penalty kick? Yeah, I don't know. He's an Irishman. That's incredible. Right? That goalkeeper should be, you know, thrown out of the goalkeeping fraternity. And goalkeepers should say, look, there's no penalty no matter what. We can do whatever the, you know, F we want. How far away is the penalty spot from the goal line in yards? (laughs) It depends. Depends on if your official is an Atlanta official who marks off 13, uh, 12 yards. That's correct. I was going to say it depends on the size of the youth referee's feet. Can I? uh, Yeah, exactly. We got two more. We got two more. We're going to get back to business here. How many MLS teams are there right now? Oh, Wait, Alan had idea. nothing to say there. Oh, can I add something to that penalty kick idea? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when I played with you, I don't know if you guys remember this, but when I played with you guys uh, at, with Sting, um, I don't Sting, it. Sting Gold, I know I, I hard, hard to remember that long ago. Uh, I played sweeper, and part of the the um, what's the the word I want? The deal that J- our manager Jason Russell made with me because we were so chock full of attackers. Uh, he said, well, if you play at center back, then you can take all the penalty kicks. Um, so I got to take all the penalties. And one time we were playing, um, I don't know who we were playing, a, a, a decent team. We got a penalty. I took it. I scored it. But it was um, it was in the first half, and there was must have been a spot 12 yards mark already, and no problem. In the second half, there was a second penalty, and I went to take it, and the referee couldn't see the spot, so he marked off 13 yards. It was – that extra yard was really dramatic. And uh, is that, is I that argued with him. The only penalty kick you've ever missed was mismarked. Is that what this story is about? I haven't missed many, but I missed that one. Uh, yeah, I that's think the where keeper, this whole thing is going. Excuses, Alan. Excuses. We're on yeah. to the next question. Okay, well, I fine. thought, wait, 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 wait. What? I thought we were going to, which I think has been mentioned on the podcast before, we're going to mention that Mikey Dobbs combining two of the trivia questions is, as far as I know, the first and only player to be sent off arguing that a penalty kick in favor of our team was a terrible call. That's true. You got to have principles, Dave. (laughs) When the ref is doing a terrible job or refereeing the game and then gives you a penalty kick on your behalf and he's got that wrong, I'm not going to change my argument from yelling at him for the last 30 minutes. If he's doing a terrible job, I'm going to let him know. If we had that on videotape, it would have been epic. Ah, so good. <laughs> it's been hard to get to the next trivia question. You guys ready? All right. I'm ready right. now. And this is like a softball. How many MLS teams are there? That's not a softball for me. Uh... List them all. No, don't do that. Yeah, don't list them all. Just take I, a I, shot. I truly <laughs> don't know. Uh, 20, uh, 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 20, 28. 26, you're only two off. And there's yeah, close. there's uh, plans to expand to 30 by 2023. The final question is, our Atlanta United goalkeeper, the goose, Brad Guzan, mm-hmm. had 144 appearances for this EPL club. Villa. Yeah, well done. Aston Villa. Yeah. Um, Poor guy. Yeah. He just was like a – they weren't so great during, I think it was like 2008 through 16. He was there. I don't know. I mean, they stayed up for the most part, right? They were so, down at one point, I think, but not yeah. the whole time, but they were up. Yeah. A shout out to my buddy, Mike Peters is a big fan of Aston Villa uh, and for them staying up. So it was a yeah, big miracle. Absolutely. Miracle. Yeah. Right. 
I like the Midlands team standing there as a Wolves fan, even though Villa is, as you can see, my Wolves banner there. But, um, yeah, I, I like to see some of those clubs still fighting it out. Um, yeah. Wolves are great. Yeah, they were they were a fun team this last year. In fact, they were the the ones I think most of these top clubs didn't want to play just because they were yeah. they were a wild card. They were trouble. That Jimenez from Mexico is yeah. an incredible striker. Dama Traore was finding oh. his – he's just, yeah, zero to 60 on that. It's like yeah. nobody could stop the cross. That he would just go into the corner and just cross it. Anyone yeah. there? Anyone there? So Frank DeBoer is out. We're going back to Atlanta United – Anything to talk about with Frank that hasn't already been discussed? I mean, I feel like it's pretty straightforward. I mean, from day one, I wanted to give him some runway, but it never felt right to me. Um, And everything he proved from his communication, from interviews and whatever, just kind of alluded to he's probably not doing the first thing right, which is connection with each player and being able to communicate with your players. And I – I don't know if his language or culture of being Dutch and regardless whether you're a great player or not, it just, it just never felt like he could do that uh, out of the gates. Dave, what are you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. When you have a, a player meeting, you know, the all-star break or whatever of your first year and the players are ranting and, and, you know, and then you make an adjustment, which actually helped. It's not a good sign. Yeah. And the adjustment was, let me listen to the players and just go back to the right. way we were playing under Tata. Right, exactly. Play the way they were originally playing with the same roster. So Yeah. So I feel like that that, that conversation has been hammered all, all over the place. I don't, I don't know that we need to dig into that. But I guess it, what, the, what concerns me about that was the fact that Eels and, and Boca Negra made that decision. And it never felt right out of the gates. And I'm not one – I don't want to poo-poo on anyone – um, I feel like I gave DeBoer a, a long runway, but like how much accountability is there with Eels and Boca? And, and they're the ones who are on the hunt right now for the next coach. I felt like there was a little bit of political with the fact that we had just won the MLS cup, that we wanted a splashy name. And that's part of the, you know, the, the Frank DeBoer as a soccer player was great. Um, I don't know if they can be accused of going after the splashy name so much. I mean, in that, um, they wanted a guy who had a system and they wanted a guy, you know, so he had had all that success with Ajax, which has a very, you know, youth oriented system, developing kind of players. Um, and on top of him having all that success in a system, I mean, Atlanta United would love to be Ajax. So yeah. they were like, look, we have a successful coach who came from Ajax. And then um, on top of that, it just so happened that he's fluent in, in Spanish and English is a you know bonus. So I think it his you know, English his English was not fluent. Well, because we're enough. spoiled and things are ridiculous, and he mm-hmm. just doesn't know how to use words. And that to me was a signal that if he's doing that to the public, then he's not able to communicate on a personal level. And I think those are mm-hmm. those are important signals. If you're not, I'm not the- so sure though. I think you know. I mean, I agree, agree with you. Word choice can get you in trouble, but. Yeah. If you have a uh, rapport with players, I don't think word choice is going to throw you off. Yeah. Sounded like he had a pretty good relationship with Barco, at least at some point, um, just through some of the rumor mills. But uh, I don't know. 
you know, you're further away from this, Alan. Did, do you have any opinions on DeBoer as a, a, a fit for Atlanta United out of the gates? I, I, I don't know you guys well enough to know what the ups and downs or all downs were really like. The only, I mean, I'm sorry, but my only perspective on this is that um, FC Cincinnati had a hand in, um, in his removal in a way. And I, as a fan of soccer, uh, I always love when a, a manager gets sacked after my team has beaten them either in the most recent game or relatively recently. I remember Liverpool smacked uh, Tottenham a few years ago and Diaz Boas got sacked like immediately after like a, it was like a five nil crushing. Um, so I'm so sorry, but that's my take well, on the this. The good news is, is most Cincinnati. of our listeners, the most of our listeners are probably happy about your take there. So, Oh, good. Wait, well, I'm now, happy wait, I can wait. help. Wait, wait, wait. We would be remiss without comparing to Cincinnati's disastrous coaching selection. Right. Well, you want to inform the the fans about FC Cincinnati's previous coach? Of course. Well, we our previous uh, coach was this guy named Ron Jans. Uh, he's also Dutch. Uh, he, um, I guess, had a history. I don't know all the details, but had a history of saying, uh, you know, uh, oh, that's racist right. things in the yeah. locker room, and uh, and a couple of players, several players, like went to the 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 management and said hey, this is what he's saying. Uh, it took a little bit while, a little bit of time to uh, act, I think, but, uh, but the right decision was made and we, we got that guy out. Yeah. Um, uh, there's no room for that. So, uh, you know, it was hard at the time. Cincinnati lost this like new coach that had some history of success in the Air Divisie and that uh, uh, we have a new coach now. And uh, I think it's going to so be Atlanta United fans can take heart that as bad as it went for us, which wasn't that bad, um, it was worse for Cincinnati. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, sorry, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, had to, I had to bring it up to make a fellow feel With better. Frank DeBoer out, we we brought up our uh, ATL United 2s coach, the USL coach, uh, Stephen Glass, who I guess is a former Newcastle United uh, striker. Um didn't know a lot about him. Uh, I watched a YouTube video that they did with him in an interview. Um, I got to say, I, I, he seems like a very straightforward guy, like a really good choice for an interim coach. Um, I don't know, Dave, do you know a lot about uh, Stephen Glass uh, and anything? You're just shaking your I head. Think so. it's, a, it's a shambolic choice. You think so? I mean, I mean, so his, so he, you know, the only thing we really know him as a coach is coaching with the Atlanta United twos. Yeah. The Atlanta United twos, their defense. I mean, shambolic is like the nicest thing you could possibly say about That's it. True. They routinely give up three goals a game. Right. I'm like any coach who does anything right. I mean, one of the things you can do is get a little bit of organization and goals go down to one goal a game or, 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 or even two. I mean, his, the defensive organization, and you could say, all right, well, look, you know, he's been brought in to develop players. They have a lot of attacking players on the team. Fair enough. But, he, you know, you can't just develop the next attacking player, and we've already got a lot of attacking players. You've got to also develop the next center back to also develop the next right back, left back, defensive midfielder, whoever it is. 
And the idea that you can coach Should, Atlanta United. Do you think too, Tata was developing our back? Well, I mean, I think that was probably Tata's weakness, but Tata's teams were not giving up three to four goals a game. Well, I mean, that is, I mean, I, I'm Without just saying you're kind of hanging the guy before he even much. starts. I hear you. I'm just saying I don't know. I don't know what his capabilities are of developing it's the back. Shocking though. Any coach, I would say you could be the coach of the local elementary school, and an eleven aside, if you're but giving if you're, up three if you're to Frank, four goals a game. But if you're Frank Lampart, is that your fault that you don't have the talent in the backfield? That might no, be the but, case. That might be the case with Atlanta United twos, whereas the first team has Escobar. Miles Robinson and Mesa were very capable. So Fair, is that his Frank fault? Frank Lampard, as bad as their defending has been, is not giving up three to four goals a game. Uh, he's given up at least two or three. A couple of times they've given it's, up it's two a roller or three, coaster. but a couple of times they've given up zero. They're probably averaging one to two. Yeah. I mean, I would guess, I mean, we'd have to go into stats, but I guess Frank DeBoer, I'm sorry, Frank Lampard, um, who – is yeah, well, we're talking different you know, categories of soccer now. Stuck, stuck with 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 what you're saying is, and I think it's a good comparison for defense. But if you say that, I bet if you went into the stats, Atlanta United two is giving up almost twice as many goals as Chelsea. It's also the USL. All right, I know. Any thoughts on that, uh, Alan? I'm just going to stand on the sidelines. I like it. Um, I don't know anything else. But on you know, it? Alan Alan was watching FC Cincinnati at USL, right? You're not winning the USL giving three to four goals a game. So okay, let's right. move, I, before we get into the players, let's talk about then the coaching. Then who's next? Who should be next? If it's not someone like uh, you know, I, I don't think that there's any hope for Glass to prove himself and then move into the. Uh, the future role. I don't think that's the case. I think they are certainly hunting for someone. Um, you can make an argument that they went with him just so that nobody would have any reason to stick with him permanently. Yeah. What do you? So what happens to what happens to an interim coach like that when they've got a great job at the, with the twos? They get moved into an interim coach, and now there's somebody who's now the coach of the twos. He gets kind of like shot off to the sidelines after this is all done in, in a month and we find somebody. I can, I can speak to that a little bit. Uh, there's a guy on FC Cincinnati named Johan Demet, and he, uh, after um, FC Cincinnati had a coach uh, initially named Alan Koch, and uh, he was canned, yeah. and then uh, Johan stepped into the interim role. Uh, and then they hired Ron Jans, uh, and then Ron Jans turned out to be uh, not the right choice, and they canned him. Johan yeah. Demet was kept on during that time anyway, and yeah. he was re-promoted to interim coach. And then they found Yap Stam. Yap Stam's now the coach. Johan Demet has now gone back to this assistant role. In, in this case, he's been this guy that's been like this like consistent thread throughout the history of uh, FC Cincinnati, at least in the uh, in the MLS uh, yeah. tenure. So that's one thing. Keep a guy on. Uh, yeah. just to be that that steady uh, steady presence yeah well in in terms of like listening to Stephen uh, Glass in the interview that I saw that Atlanta United uh, FC put on on their YouTube channel I just I mean it was just refreshing to me to listen to an Atlanta United coach who just was 
straightforward, you know, it was saying things that I understood where with Frank DeBoer, there was always like trying, I was trying to interpret what he really meant. And it was just a little bit of, there was just not, it wasn't real. I'm sorry. It just never was in any of his interviews. Like he's a nice guy, no doubt about it, but it wasn't straightforward brass tacks. I'm here to play. So- this is soccer and I'm the bloody coach. And I never got that from Frank DeBoer. It was like, it was like his shoes and his fashion and it was all, it's like all a show. <laughs> and this, at least this guy, like Dave, he Operati might be, the, he might not football. know, he might not know how to sure up the defense, but at least he's no bullshit in terms of like, if I'm a player, I want to listen to somebody who's communicating to me. And to me, I just felt that I was like, all right, at least as we figure out who the future coach is, at least this guy is going to stabilize a club. Maybe we'll win 60 per 60% of our matches moving forward until that happens. So was was De Boer, and forgive me for being ignorant, was he kind of like thinking he was Mourinho or or, uh, or Pep, but in MLS? He definitely had a little bit of um, self-confidence. Yeah, I think that's hmm. fair. I mean, I think that's a pretty good analogy in a – if you were to equate it down to like a, you know, JV level. I mean, I think there was a little bit of that in terms of he's accomplished everything in – football himself Um, he certainly had success at Ajax as a coach disaster for a year coaching in between but uh, yeah there was a little bit of that arrogance that um, you know it's kind of awesome that Eels was like no you know we gotta we're gonna hold a standard and you're out and I listened to an interview with Eels about it the other day, and it basically, you know, they said mutual parting ways, but sorry, it was not. It was <laughs> Eels is like, you're not holding my standard to where it needs to be, or Arthur mm. Blanks in terms of the mm. commitment of this club being different, more different than any other MLS club that's ever existed. And that might not be achievable is what Eels is saying. is like, we get that. It's the MLS or salary caps but we're going to be ridiculous in terms of our benchmark and we're going to keep firing at that. And if we fire short of that, that's fine. That's where our benchmark is. But the other thing is, is we want to play exciting soccer. And that was not something that Frank DeBoer was delivering. Eel said that is like, not so many words. He's like, we're not, we're not entertaining the fans. First and foremost, the club needs to entertain fans. And when you go to MLS, uh, or go to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you want to see attacking soccer. You want to see a couple goals. If we lose, you know, three to four, that's fine. We scored three goals, call it a day. One thing that's interesting is there's a certain class of coach, and I think DeBoer would fall into that at moments where they talk about mistake-free football. Um, um, you know, Van Gaal was another one, the Dutch coach, you know, he wanted to possess the ball, you know, no mistakes. Um, the problem is that we'll, the only way to play mistake-free football is not to try anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when DeBoer at times got Atlanta United playing mistake-free football, it's when we did nothing. You know, we just yeah. passed the ball around the pack. <laughs> so I'm going to shift shift the conversation a little bit, which is, DeBoer certainly had to also deal with the, the roster and who we've brought in. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously Joseph getting injured is dramatic to our chances of winning when he's scoring over 30% of our, our goals. 
as the striker and he's critical, but regardless, you know, there's some interesting moves, the way that the roster has been shifting. Um, to me, I feel like a lot of the exits, I don't know that we, I, I'm not as a, a big, I'm not as uh, concerned about a lot of the exits that happen that maybe some other people are, whether that's Nagby or, uh, LGP. I feel like those are Mikey Dobbs off, has no nostalgia. Yeah, I've no nostalgia. Well, first <laughs> off, Nagby wanted to move for a lot of reasons, and maybe you could argue that with the right coach, you could have kept him here, which I would have loved. I mean, I'm a, Nagby's amazing. LGP, I have no no problem with him moving on. I feel like the other ones are all pretty straightforward. Tito and Parker's retired, and uh, it it just feels to me though that over the last six months they brought in a lot of midfielders or kind of wingers and um, players that did not certainly sure up our defense, which has been atrocious. So Dave, I'm curious if your thoughts on just some of the, the signings we've had the last six months or so, and you know, what that would have meant for any coach to deal with uh, you know, putting a squad out there that's going to be successful. Well, you can argue, you know, I mean, Arsenal got in this trap of signing, you know, the 17th attacking midfielder, yeah. um, you know, trying to be this, you know, total football aggressive kind of team. But, um, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, um, I think, you know, the jury is really out on um, some of the recent players, um, you know, the Castros and Rosettos, um even a mole rainy and like they've played five matches um, two yeah. of which happened before, you know, with a regular preseason and then three after this weird thing uh, It's very hard to say at this point. Yeah. I wouldn't judge any of those players. I mean, I saw, you know, Manuel, it was a Manuel Castro who, um, you know, with, with the ball that came across the box, pretty whipped in pretty fast, but like to me, like he also made a great move in that play. If you look at it, he actually put Aaron Long on his ass um, by getting into the right space, and then he whiffed it, which everybody obviously noticed. It was probably the mullet that was weighing him down, Aaron. That Long. that too, but I got one going too myself. If these headphones are blocking it, and the mullet that was pre. Back. Oh no, I guess pro post COVID, right? But his same haircut, so I yeah. don't think we can blame it on COVID. Um. But yeah, yeah, we've got, you know, like to your point, so many of these attacking midfielders from, I don't know, I mean, I guess Lennon as, as a winger is kind of more of an uh, attacking, well, I guess he's got defensive chops too. Um, yeah, Joseto Castro, we signed uh, Jurgen Dom, who is from Liga MX. Yeah. The is it just me or does Jurgen Dom, I mean, we haven't seen him play yet, but he, he, he reminds me, no offense to Jurgen fans out there, uh, as a vampire, right? He's supposed to be all pace, and he's got this name, Jurgen Dom. You know, yeah. Mexican, but um, I was wondering if he might be a vampire. I don't think so. He's on TikTok <laughs> all the time. Oh. And uh, I only have to know these things because I work for a digital marketing agency, and that's I've got to understand these platforms, and he's a huge TikTok person. Well, I you have know, a question. Mikey, Mikey Dobbs a... has reached the end of the football internet, so he oh would know. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I have a question. Uh, Hit me. Being, being on TikTok precludes you from being a vampire? Um, 
not necessarily, but I'm just not seeing a lot of vampire, um, you know, connections with the type of videos that he's putting on TikTok. I see more like, um, is he in daylight? He's in, he's in a lot of daylight and it's, <laughs> it's kind of cheesy stuff that he's doing. Uh, I, I well, apparently I he's lightning quick and he just, he just appeared, you know, he just flies down the wing and uh, you're going to I hope he's focusing on soccer <laughs> more than TikTok because it seems yeah. like he's spending a lot of time on TikTok. Uh, okay. <sighs> so what else? Even today there was a signing, right, Dave? Wasn't there somebody we signed? Yes. Who's, who's uh, this Eric, guy? This is Eric, Eric um, Torres. Kubo? Kubo, yeah. Eric Kubo. And, and um, he, he's a player who's been in MLS for a while. I mean, he was actually with Shivas when Shivas USA was in LA um, before they they went the way of the dodo. Um, and he was pretty good. He scored a number of goals there, and then he went to Mexico and I think struggled, and then came back with Houston with the same coach um, of the Shivas, and then actually resurrected his career some under the same coach. And then went back to Mexico again. So yeah. he's had some real success in MLS. He's only 27. Um, but it seems hit or miss based on the coach. Yeah, it seems like the, the fit for him and the right coaching and the right system is key to his success. If I just read in between the highs and lows that he's had. Um, but also it sounds like we've put Joseph Martinez – on the injury reserve or whatever it's called for the rest of the season, which right. opened opened up the opportunity to bring him in. I guess which to, is smart. Like, yeah. why rush him back in yeah. a COVID year totally. and all kinds of crazy things? Yeah. Like, because Joseph, I'm sure, is like, hey, I want to get back. I'm sure he's yeah. the first person who wants to get back in the field. But completely right. smart in a, especially in these circumstances, to have your by far number one player, take it slow and recover and heal and come back in 2021, 110% and have this guy, Eric Torres come in and maybe fill some of the things that, uh, what's his name? John, John. John. Yeah. He was, he's like an invisible guy up front when he's out, out there. It just, just doesn't fit at all. The... No, there's a pace team, and he's 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 not that kind of player. He's a very tall, classic, you know, um, hold him up, you know, kind of um, um, front, you know, player. And you know, when you have guys like um, Barco and PT and Rosetto all playing around and wanting to play tiki taka soccer and move her fast, he just sticks out like a sore thumb. I actually think his role, you know, in terms of it's not a bad player to bring on, you know, if you need a goal with the last 10 minutes, you're yeah. sending a lot of balls in the box. He's good in the air, can finish in the box, but um, he's not the answer. And so yeah. getting Eric Torres, um, you know, he is a proven goal scorer in MLS. So that, and he's 27. So yeah. that's not so bad. Yeah, should be in his prime. If he fits in, then that could be a good thing. Yeah, especially given uh, we need some goals. We definitely need some goals, and we need to take that pressure off of – But I have to say, you know, there's a lot of people who feel that goals – we need players for goals, and and yeah, maybe. But until you have a team doing things, team scores goals, like not – 
you can score goals without having Martinez if, if the team is doing things right and creating chances. You can if you're um, Pity Martinez and you've had 50 opportunities to take a free kick from, say, I don't know, 20 to 25 yards outside the box the last year and a half and you kick it over the goal. It's like – it's such a tease. That guy is a disappointment when it comes to a lot of things um, and particularly free kicks at this point – wouldn't you expect PT Martinez to have scored one of these free kicks outside the 18? Well, just That's one. Fair. All I'm bloody wanting is just one. Like he lines up, he bends it, it goes two feet over the post. It's it's unacceptable. You got to get it on frame. But you of all players should know, like that, you know, players in confidence or whatever, you know, he's hit the crossbar Doesn't he's matter. two feet over. If get he's, it done. If he's playing with confidence, he probably scores a bunch of those. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I, I'm not I'm not yet down on PD. I don't think that we we know yet. I don't think we know yet, but I, I he's given he, I've been giving him a lot of runway in the middle of of last season. Uh, I was giving him shit, and then he turned it around a little bit. And right. there's certainly moments of magic, um, but I feel like and if you listen to my last uh, ATL on Fire podcast, Dave. Um, he, he just, he's bringing back. And of course, you know, was, this was before Frank DeBoer out, um, happened. So hopefully this will change, but it's just all the wrong things happening in terms of his body language, his dives, his missing free kicks, trying to do too much. Um, but the preseason and the first two games before, before COVID, he was great. True that. I agree. I have a question for you guys. Um, do you miss Brandon Vasquez, given that Martinez went down? Do you wish you had that guy still? Yeah. He's with how's, he doing for since, how's he doing for Cincinnati? Not really. Do you like, do you like, I don't I, miss him. I don't know that he's actually had much significant time yet in this, at least in this MLS's back stuff. Uh, he's about as good as Jurgen Dam, or uh, not Jurgen Dam, but uh, uh, John. In terms of hmm. production, think, in terms of end result, Dave, what did I think what he's did a he better do? player? I think well. he's slightly better. I don't know though. He didn't get it done when he had his. Well, you got to understand. So Brandon um, Vasquez is nineteen, and Jurgen Dom is you know twenty-seven or something. So that's a very big difference. But, I didn't mean Jurgen um, Dom. I meant uh, Adam John. Adam John. Adam John. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah Adam sorry. John's older. Adam John's older too. Yeah. No, and I agree. He's younger, but. Um, I never, yeah, you might be right. Maybe he'll develop into something, but he's at Cincinnati. He looks, you know, like he's very young, but he, you know, he's oh, you're breaking up. On he's us. got good skills. He can finish, but there, he just needs. Oh, sorry, he just needs a chance. Okay. Yeah, I hope he gets some time. I, I liked what I saw. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think, yeah, Vasquez needed minutes. You know, um, yeah. you'll never get good without minutes. That's but, right. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, any other player talk that you want to go through, Dave, in terms of uh, new – Are going to talk about coaches? Yeah, why not? Who, who would you like to see? I know um, you, you tweeted on our ATL on Fire uh, uh, handle. Dark horse pick. Paul Riley, who is a – with North Carolina Courage coach. Mm-hmm. T- t- so tell us Paul Riley the rationale there. The- the number one most successful club coach in America. 
You know, everybody, you say, who's the best club, most successful club coach? People say, oh, Bruce Arena. But um, so do you, Paul do you think that more successful. Eels and do you think that there's any chance that they're actually, t- I know you're, you're smart about this, but do you think they're actually talking to him at all? Is he even no, in a miss? No, miss? because I think they don't, you know, but I think they have a, I, the reason why I tweeted it, not that, you know, well, with all of our following, maybe it'll get to them, but, um, you know, I added, um, whatchamacallit, from the AGC, Doug, and uh, yeah, I Doug added Atlanta United because I wanted to, you know, see if somebody could at least think about it for two seconds because, yeah. um, you know, so he's the most successful women's coach, you know, in U.S. soccer history. He's just won title after title um, and been incredibly successful. He plays exactly the kind of system you want to see in Atlanta United. They have every year scored the most number of goals um, and have the most number of chances created. But what people forget is that Paul Riley, going back to our original conversation, he started out in the A-League before there was MLS. He was coaching men. And he was the coach of the year every year coaching men in the A-League, right? So he's had tremendous success coaching men as well. So, um, and he's now he's in North Carolina. Um, I'm going to guess that very much that Atlanta United is going to pay more than their North Carolina courage. Maybe he would be tempted to jump. You know, he's, he's won everything there is to win in, in women's soccer. And I, to me, coaching is, maybe we'll get to this a little bit, but coaching is coaching. And um, I, I think as a dark horse, a guy you could get who can clearly coach um, might be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess just being devil's advocate, don't you think that the ego of some of the players, whether it's PT or – some of these players look for the same reason that Miguel Amaron evidently came to Atlanta United. He was like, Oh, Tata is going to Atlanta United. I will follow that guy wherever he goes. Cause he's got this reputation. But I, it's interesting. They followed Tata because of the success. Yeah. And of course for him, you know, be weird because there might be some people be like, Oh, who cares about the success? But you know, women's soccer, but he'd come in as a, very confident coach who's had a ton of success yeah. and you know it would be up to him to earn the locker room very quickly but he's not gonna take any you know i mean this guy knows how to coach he knows how to handle a professional team yeah um he's not gonna have any problem i think you know within and you know great coaches are great coaches when you know when you turn out to get one and they're to be honest they're extremely rare. The reason why this is difficult is the great coaches are really rare. Alan, do you have any, um, if you're out there hunting for an Atlanta United coach, do you have any thoughts on who you would maybe put in into the hat? Do I know anyone? Yeah. I mean, just whether, you know, it's a coach, whether it's a dream, uh, a, a dream opportunity for, you know, uh, picking Pochettino or whoever, like, you know, that might be able to make the move. Um, mm. you yes. Know, who, who would you? Yes, yes, and yes. Yeah, yeah well, Pochettino, yeah. 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 Pochettino would be a good one, yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, I I don't think I do. I, the, the available coach that I know you wouldn't want, uh, the one that was recently released <laughs> at FC Cincinnati. Um, you actually the I thought Alan Koch did a good job I don't know where he's at right now uh, he was the one that that took FC Cincinnati through their first couple of years or 
I guess last like year and a half at in the USL and, yeah. and, and was part of their transition into MLS. Um, uh, I, I think there were some pretty uh, good reviews of him. Um, the other coach that FC Cincinnati had was John Harks. Uh, I don't know that he would, he would be a good fit. I don't know where he's at yeah. right now. Um, I'm tired of seeing, you know, um, former national team players, you know, considered as coaches over people who can really coach just because, and John Harks was a fantastic player, but just because you can play doesn't mean you can coach. And, yeah, you know, I, you know, there are that's right. many examples, you know, Alex Ferguson, not a great player, great coach. Mourinho hardly ever played at the professional level was a, you know, very accomplished mm. coach. Mm. There are other exceptions too. Pep Guardiola was a very good player and a very good coach. So, you know, it goes both yeah. ways. So um, I've been available. can we, can we talk about Pochettino? You can talk about it, but it's not, not going to happen. Sure. Oh, because Pochettino, like, I mean, checks all, all the boxes, see. right? Yeah. So did really well in Spain, did really well in England, um, both Southampton and Tottenham. Speaks Spanish, speaks English, um, clearly has would have the locker room, you know, right from the beginning. Um, develops young players. I mean, checks all the boxes. You know, to right. that end, you might you might think about, did he have an assistant or, or someone who's been with him that could be available? Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be the way to yeah. go. Because, I mean, it feels like the MLS, though, is the the league where people want to prove themselves against a stepping stone, whether it's Thierry Henry uh, going to Montreal Impact, like building up his resume a little bit. Um, or maybe he loves Canada. I don't know. Um, but, it, yeah, it feels, it feels like um, it's going to be hard to get somebody here because even – even some of the folks that have been rumored that would be a good fit, like the River Plate coach, was it um, Marcelo Gallardo? Is that, is that his name? You know, he's all but said, hey, you know, my next stop would be Europe. I would, if not, I want to stay stay here. Um, and, and same with Miguel Herrera, who's the coach of Club America. Kind of the same, the, the same thing. I think they want uh, bigger stakes in in terms of what their next steps would be versus going to the MLS. I don't know if COVID is, has changed that in terms of what, you know, one thing if anyone's out there, they want to work. Yeah. One yeah. thing I think is, is underappreciated, you know, again, this idea that coaching is coaching. Uh, I'm going to throw out a, a non-soccer example, um, you know, in Wisconsin, in basketball, you know, Wisconsin had a very mediocre basketball team for a long time and they had fired their coach and there was a division three basketball coach who won the national championship all the time and they passed over. And then they had a new opening, you know, a few years later when the coach failed, they passed over again. The third time they actually hired the guy and it turned out to be Bo Ryan and, you know, went to the final four multiple times and was the most successful coach they ever had. Um, I think one thing you can think about is look around at successful coaches, even, you know, you know, as weird as it may sound, youth soccer coaches or whatever, I might be more in favor of going with someone who's had real success over these names who've coached at a very high level, but have had, you know, some of them who've had some of the names on this list, you know, we talked about Gallardo, um, 
or, you know, even some people have been mentioned like Gabriel Hines, yeah, you know, it's Hines. had, you know, one kind of Javier coaching Aguero. job. Yeah. Um, um, Javier Aguero is a guy who's been around forever and had some success, but also had some major failures. And um, it's not a, it's not a rolling, you know, this is not a slam dunk Pep Guardiola kind of situation. So um, Tata, on the other hand, was a guy who had really pretty much succeeded at every coaching job he had. He, he did get run out of Barcelona, yeah. but, you know, Everybody they didn't give him any. Well, any, you know, any Whether chance. you're going to win the league or whatever, you're like, ah, yeah, he won enough. the league. He won the league enough. and got run out, you know, kind of thing. You're like, oh, you know, whatever. Um, so. So do you do you think that Eels and and Bocanegra are looking at prospects like that that aren't the splashy names that are people who are proven success that are on the up that no one would know their name from Shinola um, that they would consider? Yeah, the other thing is interesting. Like even a Caleb Porter who's the Columbus coach now. Yeah. I mean, he was the he won the national championship multiple times at Akron you know, of all places, a non-soccer school with, you know, and he did ultimately turn out to have Nogby on a couple of those teams, but, um, you know, and then he went to Portland and had some success. And I, I have a feeling that he's going to do very well at Columbus. If you give that guy a team, he has shown over and over that he can coach. It's just, he hasn't necessarily been in a case where he's had a great roster, but he's always succeeded even in MLS. Yeah. And then maybe we could get Nagby back. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think if you put Caleb Porter in the Atlanta United system, he could probably really succeed. But, yeah. you know, we missed that chance. You could have Garza back too. Yeah. So, Dave, this is – I'm going to just transition this right into Cat's Corner. Um, and this is, you know, just educate our listeners on what you think the fundamentals are of a great soccer coach, right, at any level – Right. So from youth league, whatever, like what are the things that are core to anybody who's going to do a good job at coaching players? And then how does that differ when you get to these higher levels? And that's where like, I don't even know that I know the answer to that in terms of both credentials and experience uh, needed to succeed. Um, you know, what, how does, how does it shift from a great, maybe youth soccer player coach who, has to have these traits and then how does that shift when you think of the highest level of soccer um, to, you know, to MLS coaches and, and these coaches and at, at these big leagues. There's actually interesting thing because there's sort of two classes of coaching sort of in all sports, you know, there's some coaches who have quote unquote, their system, their style, they like to play and whatever. And they, and they can sometimes succeed whether that league suits their style or, that set of players they have suits the style. But I, I think that is less coaching than the best coaches um, don't necessarily have a particular style. You saw it with Tata, you know, you know, he always wanted to attack and, and, and possess and play nice soccer, but you know, the, the kind of way, things that he did on defense and things that he did with Atlanta United were very different than what he had done before with Barcelona and other team so yeah. and it's a little bit different than what he's even doing with the Mexican team so um, you know that that's the the fundamentals in terms of the system and I think that goes back to 
in terms of succeeding on the field, it's about, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Mikey Dobbs and I often have this disagreement, you know, Mikey Dobbs says players win everything. And I think, and I yeah. say coaches win everything and players um, win everything. They're, uh, they're definitely by far the X factor. You just said well, it. The, inter- the interesting thing is that, um, it's not that I disagree with you. It's just that I think that it's amazing how poor you can make a set of players look if they're not in the right positions to succeed. And it's amazing how good you can look with mediocre players if they are in the right positions to succeed. Um, So part of it is, is, is identifying players talents and getting them on the, in the position on the field at all times where they can succeed. Right. You know, um, And so that's a big thing in terms of coaching. And then we already mentioned, um, which I think is even more important at the professional level, which is um, player management Um, there. And in this Atlanta United team, for example, you know, there are egos in the room. There's a former South American, you know, player of the year. um, And you have to get their best Argentinian. I mean, Barco could be one of the best Argentinian players in the next couple of years. We don't know. But if you looked at the under-20 World Cup, you would say there's a good chance of it. And he's on Atlanta United. And that's why I joked around about in the last podcast is like he's wasting away here. If this, is, if, if this ship keeps sailing the way it is, he needs to go somewhere else. Because there's no denying Barco is an incredible talent. Like I, at this point, I, I don't know. I've seen enough even in the last year with Barco to say that he's good enough and under the right circumstances to be world-class. That's just my opinion. I don't know. Yeah. And there, there are players, you know, so Barco and PD, I mean, one thing you can say about them when they're in the position with players moving around them and, you know, and attacking or whatever, they have a lot of talent. Um, the crazy thing about, you know, DeBoer's system, not going back to that so much, but they had, they were often just on an island. You know, it's crazy because you would say, all right, well, they're on an island because we're playing so defensive and we're just sitting back. But the crazy thing is they're on an island and we're sending our outside backs just flying forward. You know, they're not supposed to be on an island. And yet they are. You don't you didn't really see, um, you know, Lennon or, um, you know, Balo really – intertwining with PD yeah. and, and, and Barco that much. So putting players in a place where they can succeed is really important. Yeah. Alan thoughts. I agree yeah. with Dave. Yeah, Dave's, I, Dave's a lot smarter than me. So I'm just going to say, I agree yeah, with him. I, that's usually what I do as well. It's not but, true, but okay. But yeah, you know that when you mentioned Lennon, what, what do you think about Brooks Lennon, by the way, just let's talk about a few players because I still don't know what to think about Brooks Lennon as a player. Um, he certainly works his ass off. Um, he, there's things that he's, he's, he's not delivering at the end product that has me scratching my head. There's a little concern that Atlanta United and the front office is a bit obsessed with, you know, getting pace injection into the team. You know, if you look at Brooks Lennon and you look at Jurgen Dom and you look at Mulraney, those guys can all fly. They're athletic or whatever. But the question is, you know, can they deliver a ball? And if you go back to our 
beloved Gresselmania, mm-hmm. you know, couldn't fly, but man, could he deliver a ball. He doesn't seem to be doing that great for the money that DC United paid for him there, does he? Not so much yet. Yeah. So that's But it goes to show you it's it's um you know, I mean Gresso looked like a million, you know, bucks. Like he could be, you know, a national team player for Germany at times for Atlanta yeah. United. And um he can just appear just as fast. And that's why I say coaching matters because it depends on the spaces. He, when he is given a chance in some space to deliver a ball, is brilliant. But, you know, at D.C. United, I mean, I haven't watched much, but a little bit, I felt like he's been asked to, you know, get the ball, take on a player, you know, not his strength. It's not that I disagree that coaching doesn't matter. I, I feel like it's so basic in my mind, though, which is the first thing a coach has to do is make sure the team is having fun. For sure. Period of the end. This is a game. It's actually a game. And if you're going to get going to get the best out of any players in any position they're playing, they need to feel like they are there every day to compete and have fun. And so I feel like you can so as a coach, the important trait is to create that level of competition, but also keep it light enough to where like they they feel like they are they're a unit and having fun and like that's every team that I've been on that's ever been successful. It's like that weird, you know, grab ass, you know, whatever that, you know, it doesn't feel like anybody's in charge. And I feel like Tata kind of had that. He kind of let the team just, he wasn't in the locker room like DeBoer was evidently and just let them do their thing. Um, And I think that's probably a a pretty common trait of successful coaches on how to balance that. Hmm. That's a really good point. You want to weigh in on that? No, I think back to some of our really successful Sting teams, uh, the Action Jacksons. We were, you know, riding high for a long time against kids much younger than us uh, in the, you know, seven-on-seven league. And I always think back that, like, nobody was in charge. Like, we were all just having a good time. Yeah. Well, dear podcast listeners, I have to tell you that. So once upon a time, Alan, I, and Mikey Dobbs all played in the same side that entered – the U.S. Open Cup, and we got to the regional final, and we lost two to one in the regional final to the Silverbacks. Um, and when after the regional final, they actually got to play an MLS team. Um, I like so we were, say. yeah, we were close. Um, but I would say that team, you know, was interesting. Is Alan and I played in the back, and we had a lot of attacking talent, but. Um, because we were organized in the back, we had all this attacking talent. Yeah. They just did their things. And yet when we lost the ball, you know, there was still organization and we weren't giving up easy chances. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, like, and I'm just having like a realization because the, the year or two before that we were in the same, like when we had success, um, we finally figured it out in the back because we had so many attacking really creative players like in the midfield and in the attacking front, but it wasn't until I guess uh, you got bribed into playing in the backfield, Alan, that we kind of shored things up and Alan and I, you know, and, yeah, Alan and Dave, her. exactly. And Dave, no. too. and Dave as well. <laughs> I know. I mean, seriously that, you know, it is interesting. And that was 15 years ago, but it does equate to what's necessary for a professional team even if you have all the talent like PT and Barco, you've got to figure out a way that 
Miles and Escobar and Mesa feel really good in the backfield. So what do you think it takes Atlanta United to make sure that the mess that we've seen with those three who are incredibly talented players know what they're doing together? Well, you know, I would say actually, you know, as a great analogy, right? So, so Alan, as far as I know, played striker his whole, you know, late, you know, kind of career. Um, And I came in as an attacking midfielder, right? And yet here we were on that team that was doing all this, had all the success. He was playing um, sort of sweeper and I was playing stopper. And I think both of us realized that there was so much attacking talent that if we just organized the back, we would have success. Um, And I think Atlanta United is the same way, which is to, DeBoer was always tinkering, you know, with things and, you know, who we weren't going to play with a defensive midfielder. We were, um, you know, if you just get it simple and play with um, someone protecting Mesa in front, you know, and, and then the, the attacking talent is there. Um, you need to have some dynamic and get some movement. Um, but, you know, the backs, I think Mesa and, and Robinson can do it. Um, you know, going back to the original Atlanta United team, you know, we had Carlos Carmona. Do you remember that? Yeah. And that was the foundation that allowed all of those guys to play. And then we struggled, right? And then who did we bring in from Argentina as a defensive midfielder? Right? Yeah. Um, so you know, that really changed our playoff run when we finally said, all right, you know, you have uh, Al Marone and you have Joseph Martinez and everybody can go attack. But when we lose the ball, we're not just going to be chaos. So how good is it to see Miggy doing well at Newcastle? I mean, he had a great uh, hmm. 2020 run, uh, particularly after the, you know, the reboot of EVPL. He really seemed to shine over at Newcastle. It was great to see our, our good friend. And, Absolutely. And he's got a song, which Dave and I had long talked about, is we need songs or chants or whatever about players. And now there's a song about Miggy that's on YouTube. Uh, hey, Miggy, pretty awesome, by Mike C., who's the DJ of that. Anyway, check that out. Miggy Almiron, he's – you know, you forget how good that guy was. And that was – one of the first observations I, you know, if you go back to my first podcast on this, the show, I was like, Miggy, like you could see immediately just what a difference maker that guy was. And you forget how important a player like that is on a team uh, in, in Atlanta United. So man, he was good and he's still good. I'm reminiscing. Sorry. I would agree. I had a lot of fun watching him. Yeah, season. I mean, the, the, the problem with, with Al Marone at, at Newcastle is that, um, you know, he's sort of been asked to play forward. They spent all this money on his forward, and I can't remember his name. Um, yeah, um, Maximum. Yeah, and um, he hasn't lived up to the billing. He hasn't scored yeah. at all. So, you know, Al Marone, I don't think, is going to carry you as a striker, but he can carry you with scoring – you know, 10 goals behind the striker and, you know, assisting on a ton. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a little bit of the same style as like a Christian Pulisic. 
Um, but Pulisic is more capable of scoring goals, I think, than maybe Miggy. Um, anyway, we're off, we're off topic. Um, what else, what else uh, should we talk about on this podcast, Dave? We've been running, running here at about an hour and a half, I don't know, or so. I think um, we're 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 getting. I, I the only thing I would say is, do we want to give um, our guest our, uh, our our famous question? I don't know whether maybe we could give it to him in reference to FC Cincinnati. Yeah, do you you lead the way. All right, so you know we like to ask our guest from Atlanta United. We say, you know, Atlanta United has been so successful. Right. Um, and then, you know, we won the title in year two, which is really being spoiled. And, you know, even last year, the, the struggle year under DeBoer, you know, we got to the semifinals. We were close to getting to the final. We won uh, the Campeones Cup and we won um, the U.S. Open Cup. And we say with all that success, surely there's something you hate about Atlanta United. So um I don't know whether you can claim the exact for FC Cincinnati in terms of all the success, but um, what is it that you hate about FC, FC Cincinnati? Uh, I think that, yeah, I have an answer for this. Uh, I know my brother would agree with me uh, as well. My brother, big supporter, lives up there. Um, there are some fans who are at the stadium during matches or at the bar during matches who sort of root for soccer like they do sort of football and baseball and like anything, any call that goes against FC Cincinnati, they just start railing against the ref, like no matter what. And <laughs> there is much, there's a lot of nuance in it, in every call that ha- every play that happens in soccer. And so um, there's gray areas. There's the spirit of the game. There are, sometimes clear fouls, sometimes not so clear fouls. But there is this um, sometimes among some fans, uh, this blanket just railing at the ref no matter what. And sometimes it sounds really ignorant. Um, (laughs) That's the thing I hate. Um, I have to say that, you know, from an Atlanta United fan, that first season, the moment I knew that I was really going to be, it was really going to be special is I think it was at Bobby Dodd and, you know, we had possession. We were on one side of the field and one of the players just, you know, was in a lot of trouble and whipped across, you know, 40 yards above, you know, across the field just to maintain possession in the back. And the crowd really applauded it. Yeah. I said, whoa, you know, yeah. we're yeah. not just going to be that. Yeah, that, that the commentators even mentioned, they're like, wow, you know, the fans are appreciating like just basics of, possession soccer and the the simplicity of doing something that's really hard. Like you just mentioned, Dave is yeah. not scoring a goal, but it's doing something that changes outcomes in the long term. Yeah. I, I want to maybe uh, add a little bit of, to, to my answer. I think that uh, there is a lot of appreciation for the finer points of soccer among the FC Cincinnati crowd. Absolutely. Um, sometimes there's just blind uh, yelling at the ref that's that's it's not even i don't even hate it it's i just think it's sort of annoying sometimes (laughs) well we Um, have often commented on this podcast about how amazing the fc cincinnati fans are Um, they are amazing that's a special thing 
Yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. I get, I mean, even like, you know, in Nashville, which was our first game for Atlanta United, I mean, to me, it's exciting that, again, MLS is expanding this fast. It might be too fast. I don't know. Um, I don't think it necessarily is. I think it's the right time to do this, mm-hmm. given the popularity of soccer. I think the World Cup coming up in a few years in the U.S., um, it's going to pay dividends. And I think particularly after 2026, once the World Cup happens, that MLS is going to be in an incredible spot, mm-hmm. uh, assuming we're not all dying of COVID, um, that that's going to be the case. I don't know. I just – I think that the league does have um, kind of an interesting uh, position right now, whether it's attracting coaches like Thierry Henry um, – Yap Stam. I mean, it's it's really you know these coaches that are wanting to try to prove themselves. They're great players. I mean, that's a pretty f- common thread that's happening, and mm-hmm. it, it can only mean good things for the MLS. Mm-hmm. I have to say, you know, we've talked about it a number of times, a little bit on certain podcasts, but you know, there is this worry about expanding too much and diluting the pool. But recently, with us being able to attract high quality Mexican talent or players playing in the Mexican league to the U S if we can continue to do that, then it's not going to dilute the talent. Yeah. Well, this last year seems to be like a real uh, migration from some of the Liga MX guys who are relatively in their prime still um, making the move. Um, So it's not like we're getting them when they're 30 there. We're talking like 26, you know, yeah, and they haven't all, you know, gone to the, you know, you say, all right, well, you leave Mexico, you want to go to New York, you want to go to Miami, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the players are, they've, you know, Columbus signed one. Uh, no, not Columbus. Uh, Kansas City signed a major Mexican player. Um, so, you know, good for them. That's a real, real positive sign for the league. Yeah. So, Alan, thank you for joining ATL on fire, our yeah. first video um, part of the show. And uh, excited that you have a uh, MLS team to root for in your hometown with FC Cincinnati, even though we will give you shit every time that we beat you. You're um, only as good as your last game. It's a pretty sweet logo. <laughs> and like we were saying in the pre-chat, um, I really feel bad for the Chicago fire team in the new logo that they have I, you should look it up because it's it's pretty bad i mean wah, wah. it's wah, wah. <laughs> um and on that note and on that note, any other closing thoughts dave alan you want to get anything off your chest because now's the time if not i really appreciate you guys coming on to the podcast and um, it's good to be back social distancing um thank you yeah thank you guys it was a lot of fun giddy up all right thanks for listening if anybody actually made it this far in the podcast love to hear your feedback on twitter at atl on fire and tell your friends to subscribe we are on itunes google play and really any sort of podcast uh, platform that you're on so do listen again have a good one